0: We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of things when it comes to what we put into our bodies. But you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration for what we consume. Yet there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fona. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. A Michigan blueberry, a Massachusetts apple, and a Georgia peach. Wouldn't it be great if you could get any of these fresh and not have to wait for the season? Ever had to wait for a piece of fruit to be ripe before you eat it? No, we haven't found a perfect ripening technique or some formula that allows fruit to be in season year-round. However, as a flavor company, we can create for our customers the taste of perfectly ripe fruit anytime they want, leaving them saying, what the fruit? Mm -hmm. Today we'd like to welcome to the podcast applications technologist Hannah Subgrunsky and flavor creator Robin Prezak as we talk about all things fruit. I got to say, this is the first time in our podcast that we've had a topic so focused, like laser focused, of just one thing that has so many uses, facets, tastes, flavors. So why don't we start how we always start? Let's talk to our guests, have them introduce themselves. Hannah, please start. Tell us who you are, how you got here, and what you do.
1: Um, Yeah, so I'm Hannah. I started recently a recent graduate from Bradley University, I have degrees in biology and vocal music. Weird combination, but for my whole life, I've always been really into food, and that sounds super weird because where people we eat, duh. But when I was a toddler, I had this matching set of clothes that had a vegetable print on it, and I was obsessed with it. And I still, to this day, I can see the pattern in my mind's eye, and I loved it. And so all of my kitchen tools have fruit patterns, it's just kind of everywhere. So when I graduated from college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I have this great love for botany and specifically ethnobotany, which is how cultures use plants for food and medicine and stuff like that. So fruit tends to be one of the biggest categories of something that's used in ethnobotany. So it's just cool to get a chance to um, research it and work with it. So when food science came around, came knocking at my door, almost literally, I thought, why not? It's something cool and interesting. And as my mom told me, variety is the spice of life. So give it a shot. So that's kind of how I wound up here. And then I get a chance to work on a ton of food products, mostly sports performance plus functional things, making things that taste bad, taste good.
0: All right. Thanks, Hannah. So of course, our other guest, Robin Prasak. Robin, would you please introduce yourself and tell us how you got here?
2: Sure thing. Well, uh, like Hannah, I definitely am very interested in um, botany. Um, my degree is also in biology. I started at FONA, which was formerly known as Flavors of North America. And um, in 1998, uh, I worked at a few other companies before I graduated or after I graduated college. And some were in the food industry and some were in environmental science. And um, basically, I was interested in lab work and chemistry. So when I wound up at Bona, I absolutely loved it. It's a safe place to work. Everything we work with is food grade. And, and you know, if you like to eat, it's, it's the place to be. And if you like tasting, I've always been a sensitive palate and I find it kind of can be in your genes sometimes as my kids seem to be that as well. But along the lines of getting into this career, that's part of the requirement is, you know, and people will test your ability to taste, and see if you have the sensitivities to different discerning aromas and, and tastes. So basically, over time, I was invited to join the flavor creation team, and I trained as a flavorist. It's a seven-year apprenticeship program. I worked for Fona for about 18 years. I love it. It's it's a great place to work. Happy to be here with you guys.
0: Awesome. We're glad to have you guys, <laughs> especially with this, you know, very, very focused topic. But What brought you guys to fruit? Like Hannah, you said it literally came, was it the job that came knocking at your door or was it like Fona asking you to come and do, you know, fruit flavors for us?
1: It basically happened where I had actually considered changing my major in college to food science. One of our other team members here graduated from the same university I did, but in their food science program, which I thought was an interesting connection when I actually got here. It just kind of happened on accident and I found myself here and I've been here for almost two years now, so... I really like it and didn't anticipate it, but it's fun.
0: And you were just brought in on a fruit project or are you the fruit specialist or?
1: Um, I find chocolate and vanilla flavors very difficult because there's a lot of really delicate nuance, but I've always been really into sour things like sour candy. I eat so much kimchi. I have huge jars of it at home. So I really like things that have that more tart edge. So working with fruit, you tend to have a lot of that, like there's that sweet-sour balance. And then a lot of, it's almost like the sourness unlocks the complexities I can pick up on a little bit better. And there's so much variety in fruit. There's always something new to experience.
0: So speaking of that variety, what are the top categories of fruit that you guys deal with or that you talk about most
2: frequently? Let's see. Berries, orchard fruit, tropical, and citrus are pretty much the main categories that we deal with, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And are those part of the latest trends that you're seeing or is that just a, a universal?
2: Well, I think that people are interested in, you know, the latest and greatest superfruits, usually or the most exciting tropicals that they've heard about. Um, those are nice and exciting, but you know there's a lot of interest in those. So it can catch an, a consumer's eye on the market. so it's always fun. But then you have the tried and true strawberry and mixed berry, blueberry, which everybody's comfortable with and and also are very go-to flavors. But
1: there's mm-hmm. about a million lemon lime flavored things. There's just a new lemon lime soda launch, so that's definitely like in mm-hmm. the standard
0: you know, when I think of like soda flavors or sport drink flavors, it's like, you know, the traditional like tropical punch for soda. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, cola flavored. And then like right behind that is mm-hmm. some kind of citrus, whether it's Sprite or Mountain Dew yeah. or whatever. But my, my quick question to you, Robin, is mm-hmm. what is mixed berry? Like what berries are we sure. mixing together? Or is it just, you know, sometimes it's strawberry, you know, and two other, you know, blueberry, whatever. And then other times it's three different types of berries.
2: Well, that's a great question, Corey. Uh, Most of the time it's strawberry, blueberry, and um, say like blackberry or raspberry as well. But it can be any combination of berries. So it might lean more towards blueberry, but having a little bit of raspberry or in strawberry or um, maybe more strawberry forward. But I think generally it's more of like red. Red berry is kind of perceived more as mixed berry. So that could be more raspberry, blackberry. Generally, it's those berries, but you can have any kind of berry in there.
0: So it seems to me that it's kind of up for debate a little bit what certain people think a mixed berry is or maybe what certain people think any type of flavor of fruit is. Like my definition of a strawberry flavor might be different than Hannah's definition of a strawberry flavor. How do you guys combat that? How do you you meet those challenges? I mean... Are we relying heavily on descriptors here? What are we using to determine, say, a ripe strawberry from maybe an unripe strawberry? Maybe that's not even how you think of it.
2: Well, Corey, that's a great point. With Let's say, for example, strawberry flavors, you said ripe flavor versus a green. There's a lot of different compounds, different compounds in those flavors. So green strawberry would have more like fresh cut grass, cis-3-hexanol, cis-3-hexanol acetate, and ethyl acetoacetate and maybe a, a ripe strawberry would be more uh, the sweet compounds like methyl cinnamate a little bit more tart and more uh, fresh aroma of methyl thiobutyrate, which is the aged kind of if you smell a, a basket of strawberries it's the aroma that you get from that. but but flavor is different to people. so getting out of a out of somebody what it is to them, you know there's different, nuances. So yeah, flavor is definitely different from person to person and people taste things differently. So it's good to get their descriptors and work together and find what somebody's really looking for. So
1: it also can really depend on what you're putting the flavor into. So your levels of sweeteners and acids in whatever base you're working with can really impact the strength, especially of the descriptors you're looking for. So for instance, if you have like a really salty hydration base, then sometimes like a jammy kind of strawberry uh, where it's got that like unctuousness of pie filling might be it could be jarring especially if you don't have the right level but then on the flip side of that it also could help cover up those salty notes if you use a level high enough because it has that aromatic almost stickiness that helps to work with that particular base and then for something like a protein base depending on what kind of notes that you're trying to cover up like if it's pea protein Maybe you utilize some of that natural grassiness that comes out of it and you optimize that by using like a a green, unripe strawberry, something that's like more punchy. And then you add a little bit of acid to really make it come out. So instead of strictly covering up whatever might taste nasty in your base, then you just kind of work with it and you find a way to explain it through the flavor that you choose.
0: I always love the way you guys describe things, especially like using the words like unctuous. And then Robin just. Rattling off the chemical terms for what I'm tasting. Mm -hmm. I just, that blows my mind that Mm -hmm. you can just like, you know, it's almost like reading the periodic table in fruit. Before this conversation, I was pretty sure that it was like a tropical flavored fruit. Just because when I see things on the shelf, you know, it'll say tropical flavors, much like mixed berry. What are tropical flavors?
1: I think a lot of times the tropicalness comes from the, like the sulfur notes. Because you have things like mango and that Enzyme that's in pineapples, I think it's bromelain, yeah. mm-hmm. where it's this sort of like it while well, you eat it, it eats you. So if you eat too much pineapple and you find that your mouth's bleeding a little bit, um, oh. I've never done that, I've never
0: had that problem. <laughs> <I'm> just
1: gonna <laughs> say, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm not
0: eating enough fruit,
1: <laughs> so, so just I will eat giant bowls of frozen pineapple in the summer. Um, but I think tropical flavors are just generally like some sort of combination between that, like almost astringency of pineapple plus the sulfurousness of mango. So, Robin, what, are you, what
2: well, do you think? I, I would maybe generalize it just being from like tropical areas so that my mind goes to like those like, you know, papaya, pineapple, coconut, guava. I feel like those are pretty like mindset of tropical for me. But also, like you said, Hannah, they can contain a lot of sulfur notes, um, ripe, overripe notes, like um, I think of passion fruit. Oh, so good with the um, the sulfur character. uh guavas guava as well have a bit, little bit of the similar sulfurous character. So I can see that being like what people would think of as tropical too. But yeah, I think pineapple is in there as well. And then, you know, then then there's the more exotic type of fruits too, I think can get a little lumped in with tropical, like say dragon fruit or um yeah, those are, there's, I'm sure the list is a lot longer than that, but.
0: <laughs> so with these, sulfury kind of flavors Mm -hmm. or sulfury makeups. I'm certain we kind of want to maybe not hide these, but Mm -hmm. mask them. How do you guys deal with that? Like when our customers want, you know, that kind of sulfur to it, but don't want that taste.
2: Sure. Like, yeah, if you want something with that sulfury taste and then, and have like something of a really nice experience, maybe could combine something like strawberry dragon fruit or a citrus passion fruit. And I feel find that citrus helps to make flavors a little bit more refreshing in general. So that can lift it up. But but yeah, I'd say, you know, a little bit combination flavors would be helpful and brighten things up a little bit. So fruitier flavor along with those tropical notes are pretty common to see, I'd say, on the market. Mm -hmm.
0: So three thoughts I've had since we've been talking about this. One, my daughter said to me the other day after eating probably too much pineapple because she is a little fruit eater that I am not. Um, she was like, daddy, my mouth is ouchy after eating that. And I was like, why? It's fruit. Why would that hurt us? But now, you know, makes perfect sense. So next time yeah. I will definitely be a little bit more like, oh, okay.
2: Yeah, there's another uh, fruit papaya has papain, I believe in it, has in, the, in there as an enzyme. And, and people have said that if you've got back pain, you can eat that and it might help loosen your muscles. Really? Yeah. I so. mean that's
0: right there in the title, pain, you know.
2: <laughs> so, yeah,
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. The other thought, back to our fermented foods discussion, recipes. Mm-hmm. How did I miss this? Oh. Wine? Oh.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Wine, right? Fermented grapes? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah.
0: Just thinking that right now. Fruit. Anyways, yeah. I feel very remiss for that. I'm sorry everybody who's what listening the fruit, out there.
2: You know? I mean, what the
0: fruit? You know. What the fruit be?
2: Delicious. <Okay. laughs>
0: so, why don't I ask you guys What do you do with flavors of fruit that people can't explain that, you know, they'll like, so, I mean, you were talking about super fruits, like we had talked about goji Mm -hmm. before the podcast and Mm -hmm. acai Mm -hmm. and mangosteen, which by the way, I've seen a mangosteen recently. They are adorable fruit. (laughs) So, I mean, if, if fruit can Mm -hmm. be cute, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: go for the mangosteen, but how do you, how do you get people to understand what those flavors are?
2: Generally, uh, we'll kind of go through like descriptors and and explain what what these flavors taste like. Also, I mean, just trying to purchase them and taste them. I mean, you get those different nuances. And another thing you can do is analyze those fruits. So you can take them and basically do some extracting, and then run these onto a uh, GCMS and just basically see what what is in there. And you can build back a flavor to precisely what it is in aroma chemicals. So those chemicals I was describing to you before are all natural and found in the actual fruit. So so um, so when I'm describing those to you, it's like kind of flavor language, yes, but, but um, there's descriptors for all of those things, which can help with the customer to put it into more, okay, well, this is fresh cut grass or this is like tea like green or green tea-ish or jammy sweet, brown, so like things that people actually understand (laughs) versus a chemical language, but not everybody can know all the chemicals. And also, it's something that, you know, when you're tasting, it's, you know, people are relatable more towards those special descriptors we have and and we have lexicons of these different fruits that we can show a customer and they can pick and choose like what they think the flavor is to them. It helps speak the same language so
1: and sometimes if you have a fruit that can have some you know, challenging like co-tastes so for instance passion fruit can get a little sulfury mango can get a little sulfury sometimes if you go the super realistic route where you include some of those notes that might be described in a negative way and the customer is like hey I don't like that then you can go back and revise the flavor to kind of decrease some of those notes that would normally be present in the fruit, but it ultimately will make a more pleasant taste experience for the person ultimately consuming the flavor by sort of taking down what could be considered like less desirable flavor notes, even though it's not quite as realistic as it could be.
0: And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Robin, you touched on it, pointing out to our customer base that these chemicals that we're talking about being natural and finding them in mm-hmm. the fruit is important. Mm-hmm. Does it become more important when you're talking about like health food kind of thing or is mm-hmm. it more important when you're talking about, say, my unhealthy drink that I that I love, mm-hmm. and, you know, because it's full of sugar, is Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. like if you're pointing out to me like, oh, you know, I'm using all natural flavors, is it more important when you're dealing with foods that are higher in sugar or is it more important to people who are more interested in, say, natural flavor?
2: You're right. I mean, it definitely depends on what product. I mean, if you're going for Kool-Aid, generally it will have a lot of sugar in it. And and I feel like it is true that people that go for that product at that time, they're kind of not as concerned about, they're just like they want to indulge in that sugary drink and, uh, in you know, maybe the label's not as important to them at that time. However, sometimes people want to be healthier. And I mean, some people are 100% that way. But also they would be looking if it's like a say organic type of product or, or whatnot, might be looking at that specific type of product being uh, more perceived as healthy and looking at the label, looking for natural flavor at that time. And also, but to, to mention that it makes sense that natural flavors are a bit more expensive. So it's something to consider. So something like that product, you are going to be paying more for it. So comes into play. And another thing is um, to consider with, uh, there's pros and cons with all the different, lots of different aspects of the types of flavor, natural or artificial. But I'm going to say that when we're creating artificial flavors, there is a lot more nice, yummy tasting things we can use. So, and the price, it's a lot more affordable. So we can pack a lot more flavor in for the dollar. For example, there are some Ingredients that we can use that are are not even available in natural form. It's just they can't be manufactured for the dollar. It's just not even scale upable, or so basically, uh, you just couldn't even afford it in natural form. It'd be like pure gold or something like this, but um, in artificial form, we can use it. You know, a lot of like beautiful hazelnut flavors, coffee flavors, or popcorn notes and things like this are available, and. Uh, But also I feel like artificial flavors, they generally going for cost. So they'll use what gives you more bang for the buck. So it might be, you know, like most aromatic and tasty portion of the flavor versus uh, on the natural natural side, you might have maybe more complex flavor with all like the intricacies there. Artificial, you're kind of like a lot of times going into candy. There's a lot of processing. So you're really trying to retain as much flavor as you can. So you're not going to go for the bang for the buck there. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to consider. But I'm a fan of artificial because you can use anything. I mean, you can even use natural compounds in an artificial flavor and be natural and artificial. But natural is great, too. I I don't discriminate.
0: <laughs> no hate on fruit.
2: Nope, never. <laughs> I
0: will say my favorite uh, non-existent fruit is blue raspberry. And I know we've talked about that makeup on the Mm -hmm. podcast before. Mm -hmm. Um, I just came across a product called Circle. Uh, Mm -hmm. Have you guys seen this? It's almost like a Mio or except it it adds it right to your drink as you're drinking. So you don't have to do it prior to drinking. And Mm -hmm. I just, my wife brought it to my attention. And, you know, I'm not a water drinker, so... I'm sure that there are tons of people out there that are like me that, you know, look for something like this. Now, I'm sure we have a some kind of hand in that or flavor companies do have a hand in, in making those. So when you're dealing with those water flavoring products, do you go for more true to fruit or do you go for a more, say, artificial kind of flavor on that one?
1: I think sometimes it can depend on perhaps if there's another flavor in that blend. So. I love water flavors, first of all. I, for some reason, can't seem to drink regular water. It has to taste like something. So, for instance, like right now, I have an orange tangerine, and I have a strawberry watermelon. I love strawberry watermelon. So, sometimes it can depend on what other fruit you're mixing with it because a lot of them are fruit blends. They're not just one thing, and I think that attracts people to buy it because we're all used to water flavors. You know, like soda can sometimes just be like orange, and then that's it. And then the water flavors has a little bit of that, like, a little bit of the health halo because it's not soda, but then you also have a little bit of the extra interest, sort of like with the approachable adventure thing that we talk about a lot, Mm -hmm. where you include something else. So when you're blending a raspberry with another flavor, you know, I sort of see there are kind of two categories, two directions within true to fruit flavors. You have kind of more of the, I'm not sure what exactly is the right descriptor in this particular case, but um, I've heard it described as like a farty raspberry, (laughs) Um, where it has that like, funky note in it that's like almost overripe and then like it hits you in the face when you open a fridge or something or it's like on the cusp of fermented and so that can blend well with certain other fruit flavors but if you already have a different fruit flavor that's really rich like a really nice black cherry you might not want to mix it with something that's also similarly so rich and strong so you'd go for maybe like a seedier raspberry which kind of has like woody notes or you'd go for something that's like a little more slightly generic berry but you could still say like oh like this is reminiscent of a raspberry so it, it kind of depends on how you're blending it but then if you are specifically going for something that be like more deserty or like super super fresh or like you really want to emphasize sweetness then going for more of a a candied type would be more helpful especially if your sweetness is going to be on the high side
0: My sweetness is definitely on the high side, both in personality and in taste. Um, (laughs) So, and and I got to say, my favorite almost fermented fruit is a banana. I will eat Mm, them with the black spots, like, you know, and notice that my wife is like, why are you eating that? You know, for two reasons. One, it's black. And two, she doesn't really see me eat fruit all that much because I don't, which is terrible to admit (laughs) at this point in the podcast. And I'm sorry. Uh, But I do like to use those also for banana bread.
2: Oh, yes. Because, you know, and I don't know
0: of any other, I mean, Maybe you guys do, but I don't know of any other recipes mm. that call for kind of fermented fruit mm. uh, other than a banana bread. I mean, mm. do you? I mean, I'm sure there's something out there in other cultures. You know, maybe it's something I need to to research off the air. But <laughs> speaking of fruits and their different uses, I, I'm sure, like most things, fruit has a history. So, like, I don't want to talk about. I, I'm not saying like it has you know a little black book like this is my history. You know, <laughs> but. I'm meaning like it started one way and has evolved and changed. What is the history of fruit? Is that a thing?
1: I'm so excited for this. You have no idea. Um, <laughs> so one of the most interesting, like traceable lineages, is the citrus family. And you know, I'm going to play fast and loose with genetics a little bit here. But there are some really, really interesting human-bred versions of citrus fruits. There are so many, and every time I research them, there's always more that come up. Um, I'm always like, hey, how many citrus fruits did Japan develop exactly? There's always more. But there are essentially three sort of grandparent varieties of citrus fruits. They're ancient. Uh, They've been around forever. They've been crossed and backcrossed and hybridized and all sorts of things over the years. And we're talking thousands of years. So the main ones are uh, mandarin orange, citron, and pomelo. And pomelos look like grapefruits on steroids that are green. And they taste a little bit like grapefruits, but with much less bitterness. And then citron is very, very peely, not a ton of juice, pretty large seeds, kind of looks a little ugly. Sometimes it's a bit pebbly. And then mandarin oranges, we all know what those look like because they're in stores all over the place. They're on the smaller side. They are relatively tart, but they're still easy to eat out of hand. So over time, we as humans have managed to cross these three basic varieties with each other, with different descendants down the hybridized line so for instance orange which we all know and love seems really standard it seems like it would be one of the grandparent fruits but it's not it is a cross between I believe bitter orange and pomelo so regular orange is a cross lemons are a cross between bitter orange and citron limes are a cross between mandarin orange and citrus like they're they're just all over the place and my particular favorite, because when I learned this, it was like a light bulb went off in my head, is that I don't think a ton of people necessarily know the difference between a mandarin orange, tangerine, and clementine. All three, I love them. But the big difference is, so a mandarin orange and a tangerine are essentially the same thing. However, the naming convention is what makes the difference here. It's because tangerines are named as such because of the port that most people in Europe would have come across them. It's a port in Morocco. I can't say it right because I'm remarkably bad at languages in that area of the world, (laughs) but I believe it's spelled T-A-N-G-I-E-R-S.
0: So what you guys don't know is that we've always got a few other people in the recording booth here, and by booth, I mean giant room. (laughs) And uh, we've got Molly Zimmerman joining us today uh, as both coach and word of advice here. So Molly, how, how are we pronouncing that word? So Tangier, even though it has the S on it. Okay, well, there we go. I would also totally butcher that. So Hannah, thank you for thank you for bringing that up and Molly, thank you for broadening my horizons. Also, I'm enjoying the combinations of fruit here and I'm starting to put together names in my head of what they should have been, like <laughs> citrorange or something. I mean, that yeah. would have been sweet, literally. So please continue.
1: Thank you for the assist. I can sing in French, can't speak it to save my life or anything related to French. Um so a clementine is our perennial favorite. We know them a lot of times as cuties or similar brands as such, but they were bred off of mandarin oranges specifically for smaller size to be incredibly easy to peel and to be a little on the sweeter side. And they just taste like liquid sunshine. So uh, <laughs> it's amazing. And there are tons of really bizarre citrus varieties we don't see because our supermarkets, especially, particularly in the U.S., we tend to see pretty standardized varieties. So like we have, we have one variety of orange a lot of the time and we have one supermarket variety of lemon. Apparently it's the Eureka lemon. And then we have one version of lime. And for the most part, we use Persian limes. Um, and there's this whole debate about key limes and whether or not they're really real now because of terroir, T-E-R-R-O-I-R. So uh, there's fascinating varieties. Like there's something called Buddha's hand, which is specifically grown for the pith and skin because they use it to make like medicinal type candy. Um, They end up candying the peel. There are Australian blood limes, which are like blood oranges, and they're considered the goth lime. There are sweet limes that come out of uh, farmer's markets. There are calamansi limes that are kind of similar to oranges, but sort of in that gray area. You know, grapefruits are from the Caribbean and they're a cross between sweet orange and pomelo. There are ugly fruits, which are Jamaican and are actually trademarked. So there are a lot of these really interesting crosses that we as people have just gone, hey, that tree produces cool things. This tree also produces cool things. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and it's just, it's really, really fascinating. And then you just have this profusion of all of these different flavors. And then, you know, when you come into the flavor lab in particular, you know, you look at all these different varieties and you go, oh, hey, like what's special about this one What's special about this one. You know, what aspects of it are dominant? Like, is it mostly used for the peel? So then we go for a more rindy flavor. Is it more used for its juice? So we emphasize that character. So there's just so many different aspects, so many ways to go. And also so many orange varieties. <laughs> so many.
0: I'm now providing backstories for your fruit. The goth, what was that?
1: The Australian blood lime.
0: The goth lime? hmm In my head, I'm like, you know, this goth is walking out of the house. You don't understand me, mom. You know, you you don't get my music or something like that and, like, just, you know, white face paint. <laughs> incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, we, we kind of touched on, you know, genetic modifications and whatnot. Now, have you guys seen these pictures on social media or on the Internet of what fruit used to look like? Are these just, like, hoaxes? Are these just, like, Photoshopped images or is this legit? Like, I saw this one that was supposed to be a banana and it was all seed with a little bit of white flesh that was supposed to be what you would eat. And evidently they've genetically modified the banana to be what the current state is. Also, did you know a banana is made up of like three parts? Like if you push your finger through the middle, it'll split into like three separate parts, mm. like like mm. long strips, like pickle spears. I, I haven't tested this yet. Kind of Again, social media lies to me all the time. So <laughs> please, like if you guys go and you find out this is true, let me know. But is this real? Like, Like do they look one way when they start and change to something else? And if that's the case, like – we eat with our eyes, so did we do this for flavor or did we, did we do this for aesthetic?
1: So we do have a long storied history of over time selecting crosses that will make crop plants advantageous to us as a species and by proxy other species as well because they also benefit from this. Because a lot of times we select certain plants for crop yields, for better nutrition, for fewer fewer and smaller seeds and greater flesh Things like that. And one of the great ways that that is exemplified is through the history of the strawberry. So, the strawberry that we know and love is not anything like it started out in North America. The strawberry was basically just a little wild strawberries that grow as weeds and they don't taste good. Um, As a child, I tried, not good. Uh, They're very watery and they don't really taste like much. And then the strawberry goes all the way back to the Romans. It was mentioned in the first century AD, but as an ornamental, and they look Just weird. So, there's this really interesting, bizarre history of all of these slightly different strawberry, I guess, neighbors crossing different continents. And the product of that is the strawberry that we can buy in supermarkets where it's a relatively large size. Some of them I've seen, and they're like as big as my palm, like they're insane. And they taste like something, they taste really good. And those aspects, the size, plus the growing ability, plus the flavor, all of that was the re- direct result of a bunch of crosses that were made because there were varieties pulled from South America and that were bred in France and other parts of Europe. And then they moved over to America and to North America. And then they gradually kept crossing and crossing and crossing until it became a major crop all across the continent. It's huge in like where there are strawberry farms they're enormous. So the whole reason we have strawberries the way they are is because we've had three continents of crosses of pulling a species from here and then transplanting it here and then crossing out of there. And so this whole time we've been taking crops that we know we can eat, we know we can get nutritional value out of, and then gradually making them better by finding all these different varieties. And that also goes back to like early world ideas, and I'm talking like super, super early where it's like the whole reason why we have these similar species on continents is Pangaea and all the fun stuff that we learn in like sixth grade geography. And it's just a really interesting way to trace where human development has gone. You know, you have the French taking a species from Chile and then breeding it in France and then immigrants going from like the Netherlands with the species that's cross country borders and then taking it to America when they immigrate and they find all the space to grow a different crop. So... It's just partly tracing human history, but also with the history of this particular fruit that we're like, hey, that's cool. Let's make it better.
0: So with all these crossbreedings and Gregor Mendel style genetics here, that's a deep cut from like sixth grade for me. Mm -hmm. Does that affect how people perceive flavor of, you know, commonly held things? Like, you know, I might think a banana tastes one way, but somebody from a different country may think otherwise.
1: I'd say like the biggest one a lot of times has less to do with like the specific descriptors of a particular fruit, and it has a lot more to do with like your basic taste. So I've noticed a lot of the stuff we do for, for instance, Europe, they usually, I think, cut down on the sweetness and the acidity, like they want things to be on the lighter side. And I think that could be in part because they have some extremely stringent regulations in different areas that maybe we don't necessarily always have in the US, but it can also depend on The particular fruit that's native there so like you see a lot like if you're looking at say South America for instance there was a project that I worked on a long time ago where they had hibiscus and it was labeled as Jamaica and I looked at that like Jamaica how is Jamaica a flavor and then I had to do a little bit of asking around and a little bit of search to see that like oh Jamaica actually is hibiscus in Spanish. So I think a lot of the times the actual fruit flavor can be pretty standard, but then you have the, the moving parts around it, or the particular thing that's like special to that country and that culture. That tends to be the thing that changes more. Still learning about that though.
2: And yeah, people in in you know different countries. You hate to generalize, but like for example, in Asia, sometimes people like a lot more uh, robust flavor types. Like I've I kind of noticed that. And, um, you know, versus maybe Europe's, maybe a little more subtle. Flavor types, like you were saying before, uh, less sweet, maybe less sour, but also like the flavor, a little more subtle. And then in America, I, I feel like it's probably middle middle ground, you know, <laughs> but that's from being from here, of course.
0: <laughs> Again, America being that melting pot of middle ground, expecting kind of all flavors amalgamating meeting here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm also going to be pronouncing Jamaica Jamaica for the rest of my life now. Um <laughs> So it's time to hit on the last part of our podcast before my questions. Let's talk about key takeaways. What can we pass along to our listeners that you think is the most important thing to consider when creating fruit flavors?
1: I think fruits are so diverse and I have so many notes lay out in front of me of stuff that we just didn't touch on and I could talk forever about all these different varieties. So there are so many to pick from and there are so many different things you could try that are still approachable enough that people will still be interested so you diversify a little bit you know you look at other sources and you know be a, just to be a little bit more adventurous like there's so much out there but it's also you know with that adventurousness it's really really important to leave descriptors of really what you're looking for and and you know, when you give feedback having that direction of what you want, like, help us help you. If we know what you want, then we can pull the stuff for you. Like As Robin said before, like if we are on the same page language-wise and then we have that open lane of communication, then if we know exactly what you want, then we can help give that to you.
2: And if we can find it in the store, like, let us know what specific type of fruit or, um, you know, what the desired profile is on the market, um, we can we can try to come as close to what you want. As possible,
1: the only thing I wanted to point out extra about berries is that there are about four million varieties that have been developed in the U.S., especially on the West Coast, like Loganberry, Tayberry, Boysenberry, Olallieberry. All of these, like huckleberries, were used by indigenous populations. So were cranberries. So were blueberries. So we have um, really interesting histories that come out of all of those different kinds of berries too hmm Hitching onto different kinds, different blends and mixed berries. There are so many, and they're particularly called druplet berries. A drupe is a berry formation where it's the hard seed that's covered in that berry flesh that contains sugars and juices and vitamins and stuff like that. There are a million different varieties. We've bred so many, especially on the West Coast in California. There are uh, multiple types of berries that have been used by indigenous populations for thousands and thousands of years. And it's not just in North America, that's, you know, lingonberries and cloudberries in the Arctic tundra and boreal forest, just all these, the, they're staples of nutrition. And there's a, about a million other berries to go off of just, other than just blackberry, raspberry, blueberry, you, know, you can really push the boat out. Like there's golden berries, there's loganberries, there's olali berries, which are like the ultimate hybrid. So there's just, there's so much more as well.
0: There. By that definition, does that make a cherry a berry?
1: A cherry is a droop. It is a droop fruit. So I'm not sure. I think a cherry could be considered a berry botanically, but it's also often considered an orchard fruit because it has that pit. And sometimes that pit slash seed structure is what differentiates it from other berries specifically. And even strawberries, their seeds are on the outside. I believe their seeds are called pericarps. They're just weird. (laughs) So a cherry is a lot more closely related to like other stone fruits like peaches and plums and that lineage there.
0: So the end of the podcast, you guys have given us great information. You've given us your takeaways. Now it's time for just some off the dome answers. Take your time if you need to. But for Valentine's Day, which is coming up and this episode may air after this, but maybe next year people can use this. But for Valentine's Day, my daughter's class is putting together a fruit salad. So we've been tasked with bringing in fruit for that. (laughs) What is your recipe for a good fruit salad maybe not the best or maybe the best i don't know but a good fruit salad and again i know it depends on taste but what is your taste for this
1: i am kind of a maximalist so what i'd probably do is i'd go to one of my favorite stores and they have a lot of interesting fruits and not even thinking about seasons i'd probably throw in uh, i love peach melba so probably peaches and raspberries but i also love persimmons so i want to figure out an excuse to put those in and I love other berries too so I think I probably just walk around see what like basically it's more like what would I not put in a fruit salad and it's probably I would not put in bananas or grapes because I don't feel like they really go like bananas have that different texture where they're like almost crumbly when you compare it to other fruits but then I wouldn't really necessarily want to put grapes in because for some reason it freaks me out a little bit when you have like a bunch of cut fruit and then you just have a grape with all of its skin and then you bite into all the cut fruit and it's normal. But then you bite into the grape and it's like, I'm a little explosion. Like, no, (laughs) stop it.
0: If I peeled that grape, would that be better for you?
1: Then it looks more like eyeballs and it's gross. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. I I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, no, I would not. Like when you were mentioning that, but I know what you mean. And a lot of the fruit salads that you buy pre-made, there's grapes in there. And, you know, I am. I actually do eat grapes. That's one of my top, like, three, and I only have three. <laughs> well, four, thanks to my, my kids. Five, thanks to my wife. I'm ex- discovering new things as we speak. But, Robin, <laughs> please, go ahead.
2: I just want to add on to the grape a little thing that I learned later in life is that you can find some grapes that are so delicious, that are very firm, and they just, you know, when you bite into them. Like, it, 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 now I know why people go to the store and feel the grapes because... There's such a difference between like a mushy grape and a crisp grape. But anyhow, totally digressing there. But my fruit salad would be loads of pineapple, nice ripe yellow pineapple, not the white. So super sweet and delicious. And you're getting all the flavor. And then um, strawberries and raspberries. So definitely, Hannah, touch down the raspberry for the fruit salad. Yeah. So what about you, Corey?
0: Uh, If I'm going to make a fruit salad, it's going to be in a smoothie form. Me for fruit, it's a big texture thing um, that kind of sets me off from it. So, like, my, as I mentioned, my top five would be bananas, apples, blueberries, strawberries, mm-hmm. and even even now, clementines. That's that's new mm-hmm. for me, too, um, because, you know, like Hannah said, you know, of mm-hmm. the grape, it's like a little explosion. And in this case, yeah. it is an explosion of sunshine. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. That's mm-hmm. what I, I would go for. But I've never been one to just sit down with a bowl of fruit instead Mm -hmm. of, like, something more salty or savory when it Mm -hmm. comes to snacking, which is Mm -hmm. probably, you know, it's not a bad option. You just have to do it again within moderation. Also, because of this conversation, instead of carving a pumpkin this Halloween, I'm doing a watermelon,
2: Mm -hmm. um,
0: which is going to take a little bit of skill, I'm sure. But, you know, I think that would be neat. But it will probably go bad a lot faster.
2: Oh yeah. So I'll have
0: to, like, bathe it in lemon juice or something. But anyways, Mm. again, Mm. I digress. So Mm -hmm. my second and last question here is if you've ever watched any kind of primate eat a banana, Mm. they open it a specific way. And you're supposed to do this for toddlers if you, if you didn't know. And Mm. I do this automatically and my wife caught me doing it. She goes, why are you doing that? So if you, if you think of a banana in your head, you've got the part where it joins the rest of the bunch, kind of the stem, if you will. And then you've got the point. Now most people grab the stem and start peeling. I do it the other way and pinch the bottom and peel it that way mm-hmm. so that I have a handle to hold on to when oh, I'm eating the banana.:
1: Sure. Oh
0: Do you do it the other way or do you do it that way? And mm. are you going to start doing it that way now because I'm no, awesome?: I had to try it.
2: I, I heard that if you I can't remember which way it was, but I heard if you did it a particular way, it might be that way, that the like, um, the strings that you normally get are eliminated. Like it would stay with the peel. So like you don't have to deal with that.
0: You know, I don't know. I've never really I've never really like watched it. like I did one yeah. for my son this mm-hmm. morning because he's like mm-hmm. a he's you know big into bananas, you know, mm-hmm. almost his first word. No, no, you know. Um and I did see a string like <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of hanging on but then uh-huh. just fall down.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: maybe that's the case and I just maybe. never noticed yeah, so I that's hope that's I,
2: true. Yeah. And then that's how the monkeys do it?
0: Is that's is oh, from so what it, I've heard. Yeah. I don't know if okay. that's zoologically correct. I'll have to ask my wife the veterinarian maybe she knows she's more small animals and whatnot so maybe it's mm-hmm. you know exotics mm-hmm. um but yes are you are you going to try my my little thing uh <laughs> it'll have to be consciously I'm sure yeah
1: like <laughs> yeah I'll have to like really think about it um I usually my whole family likes to have bananas when they're still a little bit green and then once they start to get a freckle they're like nope they're Hannah's now and then I forget about them and then I go put them in the freezer where they turn a frightening color <laughs> so
0: <laughs> that's how you do it
1: banana bread <laughs> yep.
0: All right. Well, that's it for our Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Duset and I'd like to thank our two special guests, Hannah Subgrunsky and Robin Prezak. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.